0: One of the most popular movie genres these days is the dystopian thriller. Life on earth is threatened by a runaway comet or a giant tsunami, or a zombie apocalypse or a worldwide pandemic or some combination of disasters. And usually a large number of mostly anonymous people perish and the protagonists for whom we have come to care either win the day or sacrifice themselves to save everybody else. Well, I I have to admit that our passage from the letter of James has had me thinking about dystopian scenarios the past few weeks. And I wonder, what if... What if our congregation were set in a culture which was dedicated to the eventual death of the Christian faith? Not by physical persecution, necessarily, but but perhaps by more patient, subtle means. What if no new church buildings were permitted? What if we were prevented from printing any Christian literature, including Bibles, What if two ministers couldn't even speak to each other on the street without a permit, and congregations could not hold Sunday school for children under 18? What if being a Christian meant that you couldn't be a teacher in the public schools or hold any professional position? What if being a Christian meant that your children had little, if any, chance of any higher education? What if some Christians so twisted and mangled the teachings of Jesus that they were actively doing and supporting non-Christian teachings and actions. Even though the church's influence in our society has waned in recent years, what if it were projected to be gone in a couple of generations? Well, for some folks, of course, that situation would raise a prior question, whether or not to be a Christian. But that's not the question I'm headed for today. I'm headed for a different question. If all our usual means of communication were closed to us, would we survive as a Christian community or would we wither and die? How would we go about proclaiming the gospel? How would we testify to God's love in Jesus Christ? Now, those questions may sound academic, but in some parts of the worldwide church, and some would say even here close by, these are real issues. Can Christian faith survive and perhaps even thrive under adverse circumstances? The letter of James is a kind of a a no-holds-barred sermon in letter form. It was relevant to the people who first heard it, and it is, I believe, relevant to us today. However, this book of the Bible has often been ignored or misinterpreted. Sooner or later, you're going to run into someone who will tell you that James and the Apostle Paul are in direct conflict with each other, and that James says we're saved by our works, and Paul says we're saved by our faith, and which one is right? Well, the truth is that the the differences between James and Paul are mostly differences in emphasis and vocabulary. They both come out of a deeply Christian system of roots uh, and a deeply Jewish set of roots as well. Both James and Paul say that we are saved by God's freely given grace. Both James and Paul say good works, the works of love, are essential to the Christian life. Paul emphasizes God's grace and teaches that it is through faith that we receive God's gift of new life. James stresses what the reception of this gift is intended to do in changing the ways we live. Sometimes the debate centers around the question of what part God plays in our salvation and what part, if any, we play on the one hand, there is the view that we are saved solely by God's grace, a freely given gift, and all we have to do is receive the gift. Now, this view recognizes that we're not capable of saving ourselves, but this truth sometimes gets twisted and moves from the valid position that, as Scripture says, by God's grace alone we are saved, and not by worst works lest anyone should boast, to the position that says, It doesn't really matter what I do so long as I believe the right set of theological propositions. This twisting of the truth can rob the gospel of its power and leave us only open to a Jekyll and Hyde kind of existence that shows a split between our Sunday words about the love of God and our weekday attitudes and actions. It's a convenient lie. It stresses the content of the faith without any form. James says that it's like like seeing an injustice done or seeing someone in need and saying that you're sending thoughts and prayers. Now, while I would never seek to discount the power of positive thoughts and fervent prayers, if we don't follow them up by finding a way to meet the need that is staring us in the face or seeking to right the injustice, then, as James says, our faith is dead. Now, on the other side, of course, is the view that we somehow have to earn our salvation. This view holds that we can win God over by our good works, by what some folks have referred to as works righteousness, And of course, the problem with this position is all the different works that different people think will do the trick. In some cases, the list is mostly negative. Don't drink, don't cuss, don't dance, don't whatever. And in other cases, good works may mean nothing more than observing certain rituals. For example, let's say that you decide that the good work necessary for salvation is faithful attendance at a weekly service of worship, which in itself is a good thing. And in that service, you hear words, you hear scriptural words, words like, God is love. Love one another as I have loved you. And this passage from 1 John, but if you have the world's goods and see others in need, yet you close your hearts against them, How does God's love abide in you? You pray a prayer of personal confession, seeking God's forgiveness for yourself, and you receive the good news. Your sin is forgiven. Go and sin no more. But since you have decided that the important good work is simply being in attendance at the service, you may fail to see any connection at all between the words that you hear and your attitudes and actions. This view, too, is a convenient lie. It stresses the form of the faith without the content. So both of these views end up bringing us to the same place, the place of avoiding the implications and ramifications of servant discipleship. And yet, at the same time, both views contain important truth. We are saved freely by God's grace. No amount of even the best, most love-motivated acts of human caring can earn that free gift for us. We can't put God in our debt. On the other hand, being a disciple of Jesus means learning from Jesus and, and seeking to live according to the example of his active love for all people. It means giving form to the content of the faith. This is what James is talking about when he says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. That's pretty blunt language. Why is faith without works dead? Well, one reason might be that if we don't live according to what we say we believe, then maybe we don't really believe it. So how do we bring this important scriptural insight down to where we are today? Well, you don't have to look very far to know that this congregation, for one, is doing a lot of important work to put its beliefs in action. Through Meals on Wheels, The Caring Place, Brookwood and Georgetown, Backpack Buddies, Presbyterian Disaster Relief, and many, many more. Monetary gifts and gifts of time and actual work are also given. Many of us here see the faces of need. And it's not a far-off thing. It's right here. Scripture calls us to care for the most vulnerable, whether it's the residents of the local subsidized housing project, or the homeless man who sleeps on this church's porch some nights, or the unvaccinated children in our Sunday school. We can try to ignore that call, or to rationalize it away, but it remains. One of our Presbyterian faith statements says it this way. We believe God sends us to risk our own peace and comfort in compassion for our neighbors. In the end, the Lord will judge all persons by the simple, unremembered acts of kindness they did or failed to do for the least of their sisters and brothers. James has it right. Faith, without works, is dead. We are called to live out our faith in such a way that the works of love which are done through us point unerringly to the God who in Jesus Christ never stops loving us. This is the God who has acted to save us, not just for life eternal, but for this life, too. And that's the kind of love we are called to live in the world. Without it, our faith is empty, dead, and may, in fact, be the most effective witness against our faith. With it, our inheritance may begin now. And life on this earth will move toward what God has always intended for all God's children. Life abundant. Life eternal. Amen.